Still, refugees had made their way to Paris in the thousands. By the summer, the crisis had come right to Raphael's doorstep. I live in a neighborhood in Paris where all refugees come. And um, a makeshift camp of three to 400 people had been settled 300 meters from my home. And for the first there was a global problem at the corner of my street. Raphael's neighborhood is typical Paris. Sidewalk cafes, little shops, narrow streets, and an elevated subway line. And um, under this elevated subway, there is like some space uh, where actually refugees uh, found uh, shelter. And people have uh, set up mattresses on the ground, or sometimes tents, and they live there. Uh, you have families uh, that include children without water, without toilets, and uh, they, they just live outside. And they had been living for almost a year in, in, in this situation. The camp was illegal, though. And in early June of 2015, the police cleared it out. So refugees set up another camp nearby. A few days later, the police stormed that camp. You, you have the police charging on, on refugees that they have been surrounding um, in a very violent way with uh, sticks and uh, tear gas and stuff like this. That's what we hear now. Most of the, of the people surrounded are refugees, but they are helped with activists who are yelling um, at the police. What are these protesters actually saying? They scream the mantra of France, which is Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité, that, that is liberty, equality, and brotherhood. Okay, so this is right at the end of your street. What did you do? I, well, I took my recorder and I went to report. This eviction is how refugees are sometimes treated in France. The border police try to keep everyone out, and then the people who do get in aren't treated well. As I was watching this, I tried to make a border between the citizen I was and the journalist I was. But after a while, you know, the, the border is, uh, is melting. Seeing all these people fleeing for their lives made it hard to stand by and simply document what was happening. Raphael was supposed to be a neutral journalist, but that seemed like a cop-out. These people needed help. Raphael lives thousands of miles away from us, but his story caught our attention earlier this year because it reminded us of what's happening here with the battle over immigration policy. We first aired this story weeks after President Trump took office and announced he wanted to ban travelers from several largely Muslim countries. That led to legal challenges, and the Supreme Court recently announced it would allow part of the ban to take effect until it reviews Trump's plan. Americans are really split on the immigration issue, and so, as it turns out, are the French. So let's pick up the story a couple months later. In October 2015, when Raphael takes a reporting trip to Italy just across the border from France. Lots of refugees reach Italy by boat, people from the Middle East and African countries like Sudan and Eritrea, but they don't want to stay in Italy. There's no work, and conditions are bad for refugees. 
So many of them go to this one train station in Ventimiglia, Italy, to try and sneak across into France. I was at Ventimiglia train station, the train station of this border town in Italy where all refugees gather trying to go to France. And they all gather at the train station because most of them try to go to France by taking the train. Raphael sees hundreds of refugees waiting. Some of them sleep here at the train station, on pieces of cardboard surrounded by their belongings. Raphael has seen a lot as a reporter. He spent 20 years as a war correspondent. He covered the Iraq War, the Arab Spring, the Balkans. He served in the French Foreign Legion in Afghanistan. But at that train station, he meets a Kurdish family from Iraq, and their desperation gets to him. This family was, um, um, there was the father, the mother, two children, uh, one and two years old, the daughters. Uh, Leah was uh, the two-year-old daughter. They had been sleeping outside uh, the the train station for a few days. The one-year-old daughter was having diarrhea, and their aim was to go to England. There's a French lawyer there at the train station volunteering to help refugees. Through an interpreter, she tells the Kurdish father that England's border is closed. There are 3,500 or 4,000 people waiting to cross, and they cannot cross right now. It's impossible, especially with children. She's trying to convince the father to forget about England and ask for asylum in France instead. You have other refugees uh, listening to to the conversation. And after hours, and I'm not joking, hours, the Kurdish father actually uh, uh, accept that he would uh, request for asylum in France. So he asks the lawyer, um... Then take me to Nice, the French town, and take me to ask for asylum there. And because the border is closed to refugees, the lawyer answers, I'm sorry, I cannot take you there. It's illegal. So just to be clear, it's it's like a, a catch-22. It's legal to ask for asylum in France, but illegal to cross the border into France? Exactly. The, the Kurdish father di- didn't understand that situation. It's this catch-22 situation. So, and he had seen me arriving at the train station with my car, an old white Mercedes. And he looked at me and said, you have a car? And I said, yeah. So why don't you take us to France where we can ask for asylum? And my heart started beating a bit faster and and, and I told him, oh no, I'm a journalist. Uh, It's illegal to cross the border with refugees inside. And then I thought to myself, what... What this this man is uh, is a father, you know. He has uh, kids; they're one and two years old. One of them is sick. His wife is exhausted. Um, how can I say no? So what did I do? I I called a friend, Hubert, 
Hubert is at the head of an organization in the southeast of France uh, that uh, deals with uh, homeless people. So when the refugee crisis started, uh, there was an influx of people and he couldn't host everybody. So he started to host the refugees at his home and it has become a habit. Sometimes you have five of them, 10, 20, 25 to 30 refugees. And I called Hubert and I told him there is this Kurdish family. And Hubert told me, okay, I will call some friends who will call some friends who will call some friends and we will make them pass. Finally, someone drove them um, through the border and they ended up in Hubert's place. So they made it to Hubert's place in France thanks to your phone call. That sounds like a really good thing for that family, but by arranging all that, I mean, you were kind of acting like a smuggler. Well, I wouldn't say that, Al. I'd rather say I acted as an intermediary. A smuggler was really what I became next. Raphael the journalist becomes Raphael the smuggler. That's ahead on Reveal. Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. This is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. We're hearing the story of French radio reporter Raphael Kraft, who ended up crossing the line while covering the refugee crisis in France. When he got fed up seeing his country's border police turn back families and desperate people, he decided to get involved. When we left off, Raphael had just helped a Kurdish family cross into France by making a phone call to an activist friend. We pick up his story at the same train station in Ventimiglia, Italy, where refugees gather to cross into France. Well, I've spent the whole day uh, witnessing the conversation between the lawyer and the Kurdish family. And um, after a while, there is this guy um, that came next to us and he sat uh, on a bench, and uh, he seemed to understand uh, us speaking in English. And um, I saw he was listening to us. I went to him, I went to see him, and um, I had spent the, the, the whole day, you know, recording, listening to tough stories. And um, I thought, shall I interview him? Or do I have enough sound? I am tired. I am emotionally affect, affected by all that what I've listened to. 
And finally, I, 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 I took my mic and, and, and I switched on record. Can you introduce yourself? I'm Ibrahim. I'm from uh, Western, Western, uh, Western State in Darfur. It's called Al Jinina City. And um, I arrived here about uh, two weeks ago in Italy. Mm-hmm. Here in Ventimiglia, where, when did you arrive? In Ventimiglia, I arrived uh, five days ago. Uh-huh. Uh, so I spent the whole five days here. Ibrahim it's comes from like, uh, Western Darfur, where a war has been raging for decades. The regime has uh, created militias called Janjawid. Ibrahim was requested to fight with them, and he refused. And uh, because he refused, uh, the gate to university, jobs, uh, public uh, work was closed to him. So the only solution for him was to actually flee and leave the country. Because we're being escaped from war and death, and we are seeking peace. This is the main issue we came for. So for me, my destination is France. I want to live there, I want to stay there. I'm seeking peace and life and education, that's it. We are not seeking anything more. That's all we seek. I was surprised he wanted to go to France because uh, many refugees um, were were seeing France as uh, not a very welcoming country. But this guy had the dream to go to France. He had learned the French Revolution uh, when he was in school. He, he was um, certain that France was uh, the country of light uh, from the 18th century. So his dream was to go to France. And I was, um, uh, it's maybe a chauvinistic uh, reaction that I had, but I was quite happy to, to see that guy that, wow, this guy wants to go in my country. How many times did you try to go to France? Two times. Yeah, twice. I tried to go to France and they caught me and they sent me back. So wait, how exactly had he tried to cross the border before? On the train, Al. That's how most people try. Um, But Ibrahim had a strategy. I'm having shower, dress nicely, you know. Uh, put some perfume on, you know, we try our best to be like citizens. Okay, and we're trying to mix with white people, actually, in fact. Yeah, so they can feel that we are just one of them or something. We try to sit in the middle of them, okay? The problem for refugees is that all trains are searched by French police, and every time they see a refugee, they arrest him and they expel him back to Italy. I think it's clear. If I am a French policeman, I will catch them. It's clear. Because, you know, our, I, I mean, our skin, it's like, uh, you know, we look, we look tired. Because our journey is, is, you know, we've been through hell. And the sun on the Mediterranean Sea, it's very, very hot. And we've been in the, on the, in the middle of the sea three or four days. So our skin, I guess, it's burning. It's, it's clearly, it's obviously, everybody can recognize us. That's why. But the black men who are already here for a long time, their skin is locked like... That's it, I guess. That's it. That's the idea I came out with. <laughs> I, um, so I think that's it. 
Will you try to walk through the mountains, maybe? No, because this land is filled with mountains. <laughs> and I'm afraid, I'm afraid to get lost <laughs> among those mountains. And I will be die because of thirst or hunger or cold. As, as, as we, are, we are African people, we can, we can handle hotness, but we cannot handle cold. Cold is very difficult for us. So for me, it's, it's crazy. It's really crazy to try to go by feet. So on one hand, this guy, Ibrahim, sounds totally stuck. On the other hand, he sounds weirdly optimistic. What were you thinking standing there? I, I felt like if I didn't do anything, I would regret it all my life, and I will feel I would feel like a coward, you know. And especially, you know, you know, I'll, I've been, you know, I've been witnessing horrors. I've been listening to uh, uh, victims' tes- testimonies all around the world in the Gaza Strip, in Iraq, uh, anywhere. Uh, but 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 it's not my country there, you know. Mm-hmm. But in that situation, um, it was about my country. It was about France, and um, I felt uh, that before being a journalist, I was a French citizen, so I had to do something. And then I saw this Sudanese guy, and this Sudanese guy who had been trying to go to France to twice, who had been expelled, who was um, in love with France, then I said, okay, I'm going to help him. But Raphael doesn't say anything right then. He says goodbye, leaves the train station, and goes to a friend's house where he's staying. I didn't want to sleep and wake up in the morning and say, oh no, it's going to be complicated to organize, it's going to be dangerous, it's going to change my life. He tells his friend exactly what he's going to do, in part so he can't talk himself out of it. The next morning he gets up, goes back to the train station, and finds Ibrahim. And we met, and I told him, look, um, if you accept it, I'm going to take you to France for free. And he just looked at me like, uh, what? He couldn't believe that for free I was going to take them to France. And he he asked me why. And I told him, I think what French police is doing you uh, is not right. So you want to go to France and uh, I will take you to France. And then he, he told me as if to test if I was serious. And he said, you know, I've been traveling with a friend since Khartoum, since Libya. Will you take him with us? And I said, of course. And his friend was Ahmad. Okay, so now it's two guys that you're going to smuggle across the border. What were the risks you were taking? Like, if you got caught taking these guys over into France, what would happen to you? Well, um, on the paper, 
the law says aiding the entrance or illegal stay of a non-citizen in France, the penalty is five years of prison and 30,000 euros of fine, that is $35,000. But actually, they often give a lighter sentence and you don't even go to jail. So I was not too worried. And actually, I, I didn't really care, you know, Al, because I thought that uh, what I was doing was righteous. Let, 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 me, let me ask you this. I'm thinking about it from like a journalist uh, perspective. Yeah. And, I, you know, I guess the thing that, that I keep coming back to is like, you know, you're, you're a journalist and you're supposed to be objective and you clearly crossed the line there. Well, I didn't do that as a journalist. I did that as a citizen. And um, but 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 I'm, the occupation that you have is as a journalist. I mean, here in the United States, uh, if one of us did that, then we probably wouldn't get a whole lot of work as a journalist again. You know, Al, you say that a few months after Donald Trump took office, and you don't know, and nobody knows what's going to happen in the following months. And maybe uh, you're going to find yourself in that situation. Maybe you're going to have to hide some Latinos. Maybe you're going to have to hide some Muslims in your house. And I think that when you will face this situation, um, this the, the, the issue of journalism and objectivity uh, will come second, you know? Helping these refugees became more important than any worries Raphael had about the effects on his own life. He wasn't going to do this just any old way. He wasn't going to help them sneak in on a train. He wasn't going to hide them in the trunk of his car. He was going to do something much more grand that would show them the most beautiful version of France. He was going to guide them over the Alps. That's right, over the Alps. Mountains that are as high as the Rockies, on foot in October. I knew that um, if we were hiking in the mountain, the chance to meet some French uh, mountain police was uh, was very small. And um, it was, was also an introduction, you know. We were going to walk, we were going to talk, we were going to become friends, and we were going to see wonderful landscapes. I don't know, it's like a pilgrimage, you know. So what did you do next? I called a friend of mine who lives in Northern Alps. He had been a shepherd, and um, he is um, a force of nature. Can I say that, Al? A force of nature? Mm-hmm. I called him on the Sunday, and I called him and I told him, Thomas, that's his name, I need you, I need to go through a pass with some guys, and um, you have to come with some shoes. Uh, and I gave him the side of the shoes, and he said, I'm coming. And he came. Thomas the shepherd knows these mountains well. He's going to be their guide. Raphael tells Ibrahim and Ahmad to take the train up to a town further north in the Italian Alps to meet them. This is my friend Thomas. Really? Hi. How are you? Are you okay? Nice to meet you. Have a good trip? Yes. Very good? Very good. Yes. Was this your first time meeting Ahmad? Yeah, it was the first time. Um, Ahmad is smaller than um, Ibrahim. Uh, He has very, very short hair. He's smiling all the time. And for me, it was difficult to communicate with Ahmad because I don't speak Arabic and Ahmad doesn't speak English nor French. And then we meet Carlo. Carlo? Raffaello. Carlo is um, a former member of the Communist Party. And Carlo, as an activist, was very happy to actually lodge host uh, 
two uh, smugglers and two Sudanese refugees. No. And um, so we spend the night at Carlo's house in the suburb of this little Italian town. And um, Thomas and I, um, we prepare the bags and uh, we send Ibrahim and Ahmad early in bed. And in the morning, Thomas and I wake up at around five o'clock in the morning. Everybody's still sleeping. Um, we prepare the breakfast, the coffee. I go up in Ibrahim and Ahmad's room. And it's actually the first time they're welcome in a European house. And maybe the first time they sleep in a comfortable bed. And I had to force them to go inside the blankets. You know, they wanted to stay uh, above the bed. They didn't want to disturb. They didn't want to... Um, so I knock at their door. to go to France. Okay, let's go. So we left Carlos' house uh, around five and a half a.m. It was nighttime. Carlo took us by car to the start of the trek that was about an hour drive. And I climbed into the car and I started talking with Ibrahim. You love adventures, Rafael? Me? Yeah. Yes, I do. Yes, because we're having one right now. <laughs> <laughs> Even even me, I like adventures. Yeah? Yeah, but this is the biggest one. <laughs> like, you know, it seems like it's gonna be the, the fairest one. It's going to be on the fairest of my of my adventures list. Uh, I I'm 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 not sure. I'm sure that you have lived much more difficult yeah, adventures yeah. before. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah, that but that one it wasn't like, you know, adventures. Because things you do, um, how I can say that, by forest. Yeah, you live situation, risky situation, and you put your life on the line. So that one, it, you know, it wasn't on my own hands. Yeah, it's risky, really risky. And therefore, and in Libya, in Libya we saw things we will never forget. Libya is the gateway to Europe. Um, the situation is, there is a war there, the situation is not stable. So it's very good for mafias and smugglers. So refugees, especially from Eritrea, Ethiopia and Sudan, they go to Libya to actually take makeshift boats that, that are going to take them to Italy. Before they put us on a boat to the sea, you know, they beat people and the food is very bad and the place is very bad too. You paying your money, and after that they will treat you very bad. Do they call you Abid? Yeah. What does it mean, Abid? Abid it means slave. Mm -hmm. This is this is this word. You always hear it in Libya. Every black, every black body or person in Libya, he going to hear this word a lot, a lot. Back there in Libya, that was really dangerous and bad. Very bad, actually. So what we're going to do today for you is fun. Sorry, come again? I told him this must seem like fun compared to Libya. That's what I'm telling you. That's what I'm telling you. I told you. It's not, it's not that risky or it's not that bad. You see? 
and we drove roundabouts after roundabouts until the road got smaller and smaller and higher and higher and the winding roads on, on the mountain and he took us to until where he couldn't drive anymore. Ça change de la Libye, hein? On a deux clients, là. It's not like Libya here, hein? It's not like Libya, definitely. <laughs> I'm quite sure about that. Okay. Alors. On fait un petit... Euh, petite clope. Un petit selfie? <laughs> bah oui. Attends, we're gonna smoke a cigarette first. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So we leave Carlo behind. Thank you so much. Thank yeah, yeah. Ciao. And we start walking. Six hours to go up the pass and then another three hours to go down. Be careful here. Yeah. It's early in the morning so we're in the shadow at the beginning of the trek and only the top of the mountains is uh, in the sun. And uh, it's beautiful because uh, the sun reflects in the granite and uh, it's, it, is, uh, it is stunning. Look at the sun on the yeah, mountain. the sun rising. Ah, finally. <laughs> so the snow will melt already when we reach there. That's very nice. <laughs> it's really very nice. When you walk for such a long time, you have time to talk. Finally, while we walked, I started to know some more about Ahmad. Ahmad? He would say something in Arabic to Ibrahim, Ibrahim would tell me in English, and I would translate that into French for Thomas. I'm not... Uh, I can't trust his pronunciation. Ask him to count in French. Six, this, we forget that. <laughs> That's it, huh? Is he, he, he he's all right? He's right? No. No, huh? <laughs> when, when, when we started the trek, um, Thomas was very happy to take people in his beloved mountains, you know? He was really happy. He was, you know, trying to make sure everybody was happy. And, and he, 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 he cut, uh, he took his knife, Thomas took his knife and cut a, a wooden stick to give him to, to Ahmad. And Ahmad was really looking like a shepherd from Palestine in the, at the Christ time. You know, he was like, uh, like a prophet, you know. Yeah. You know, when you gave... When you gave Ahmad the stick. Thomas gave the stick. Yeah, yeah, Thomas, when he gave him the, the stick, he reminded him of his cows in Darfur back there. He used to be a nomad. So he told me, oh, these guys are reminding me of my life back there. Because it's the same environment. He's just now missing the cows. <laughs> Ahmed, we will try to see some cows. <laughs> <laughs> he never mind that. <laughs> huh. How many cows did you have, Ahmad? 
Especially Ibrahim had a very, how would I say, optimistic view of, uh, of France. You know, he had great expectations. Uh, Ibrahim's dream was to go to university. He believed this would happen immediately if he could just cross over the border. And um, I was happy they wanted to go to France, you know. And I would do everything for them so France be as sweet and soft as possible with them. But I knew that what they were expecting was uh, too much. Ibrahim, yeah. you see between the two mountains here? Yeah. This is the Col di Finestre. Di Finestre. So this is, when we cross that place, we will be in the French land. Yes. Oh, that's nice. It's really nice to hear. So we are almost out of Italy. Yes. Oh. When we are across that line, you should congratulate me. <laughs> It, it was a tough hike. It was tough for Ibrahim and Ahmad because they were not used to walk in mountainous uh, landscapes. They were not used to walk in the mountain, to climb the mountain. It was tough for Thomas and I uh, because uh, we were carrying uh, more than 20 kilos each of uh, food, of extra suit, of uh, tents, of uh, blankets, you know, emergency blankets because we didn't want to, to take any risks for them. Well, we were just about to cross the border with France, like, I don't know, 15 feet away, and suddenly Thomas calls me back and says, look there, look, there is a plaque here. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on, Ibrahim, it's important. I discovered this plaque and what I read uh, convinced me that what we did was righteous. It's a very beautiful sentence, Ibrahim. Through, through this pass in September 1943, hundreds of Jews from all over Europe, Europe um, tried to look for, often in vain, to save themselves from anti-Semitic persecution. You who cross freely, remember this each time you tolerate that someone else doesn't enjoy the same rights as you have. 
So I think that if the cops arrest us, mm. we'll say off. Yeah, we'll exactly. say, we'll say. We came through this. <laughs> so we are free men. You have free men. Yeah, we don't have to. Believe me, if they find me. Good. Welcome. Thank you, thank you so much. You have your boss? My best friend. Wow, you have your boss, Ahmed. You're happy? Happy. Yeah? Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Very happy. Wow. So I guess we can make congratulations cigarettes. <laughs> Just a few steps over the border, I started teaching them their first French word. Liberté, par exemple. Liberté. Liberté. Freedom. Liberté. Liberté. We'll hear what happened to Ibrahim and Ahmad once they climbed down the mountain into France when we come back. That's next on Reveal. Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. This is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Liberté. Freedom. That's the first word reporter Raphael Kraft teaches his Sudanese friends, Ibrahim and Ahmad, right after they cross the border into France. He's just smuggled them over the Alps. Now, this is back in October of 2015. At this moment, he turns his tape recorder off. As they start walking down, they see an alpine lake below them. Beyond that, there's a French village down in the valley. They are exhausted. They are really exhausted because they had never walked through the mountains like this. They walk down for a few hours until they get to a main road. They get a ride to a friend of Raphael's where they spend the next few days. Then Raphael drives Ibrahim and Ahmad all the way to Paris. And then we, we reach our home, my home actually. And, um, and we're happy. And the atmosphere in the house is great. For the kids, it's great because they see people coming from very far away. Ibrahim and Ahmad stay with Raphael and his wife and kids in their apartment for a couple months. Remember, this is in 2015, the height of the refugee crisis. A million people crossed over into Europe that year, and the backlash against those newcomers is building. While Ibrahim and Ahmad are in Paris with Raphael, the terrorist attacks of November 2015 happen. Shootings and suicide bombings that kill 130 people and wound hundreds more. ISIS takes credit. 
So were you worried about your um, your neighbors telling the police on you? After the terrorist attack, yeah. I was worried because uh, the atmosphere in Paris and in France uh, in general changed dramatically. Uh, the police was everywhere. The anti-Muslim sentiment was growing. Uh, so with the Muslim refugees at home, you, you feel different. And, and Ibrahim and Ahmad had uh, a look on their face that was, uh, um, you could see fear, and a different fear from our fears. That is to say that they had fled violence and terror, and, uh, and they realized that it existed also in France, so they, they, were, they were afraid. They get through their time, though, with no police stops and no neighbors snitching on Raphael's family for sheltering two Muslim refugees. Then, Raphael sends Ahmad and Ibrahim to stay with a friend in the city called Nantes, where it's easier and faster to get asylum claims processed than in Paris. So they put in their asylum paperwork, they tell their stories, what they fled in Sudan, and they wait. Everything is very slow to come, and it is so slow that sometimes you're waiting for a letter for weeks. And um, this time of expectation, you cannot do anything. You just have to wait and wait and wait. And um, it puts you in a very fragile uh, situation. While they wait for a decision on their asylum cases, though, they're also waiting for government housing to come through. They find a temporary situation an abandoned church building that's been turned into a squat full of refugees. It's jam-packed, 15 people to a room. Meanwhile, back in Paris, Raphael decides to just leave his door open to as many refugees as he can help. We regularly, not every week, but every two weeks, we have a family coming. We have sometimes one man coming. Sometimes we have somebody who stays for two weeks. Sometimes we have somebody who stays for one night. I have a bureau, an office, and um, so they sleep in my office. When there are children, um, my son, who is five years old, is uh, taking the children in charge. So he takes them to to his room so that he can introduce them with uh, his his plays, his uh, games. Um, But very often, like most of the time, Um, These people have suffered so much. Uh, They have been on the road for such a long time. Uh, They just want to rest, you know. And so they spend some time the whole day uh, in in their room. Um, But how do these people find you? I mean, what's the network? Well, there is a guy, this guy, Cedric, um, who often calls me. I don't know who he is, and he doesn't want me to know who he is. So he comes to my place, he has a drink, and um, he leaves. Um, last time he came with uh, two Eritrean women and their children of five. Then he leaves and comes back five days later to take them again. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, it's, it's, it's an informal network uh, that works. Let's get back to Ibrahim and Ahmad. They waited for about a year for their asylum claims to be processed. This winter, they got word that their cases had been decided. They can officially stay in France. So how are they doing? Let's start with Ibrahim. 
Well, today he doesn't want to talk on tape anymore. He's too angry about his situation and about the refugee situation in Europe, and in France in particular. Ibrahim is very uh, disappointed. Um, France is not what uh, he was expecting. He thought that once arrived in France, he would go to, to the university and he would study because his dream is to study. And instead, um, he has been living in poor conditions. He, he is not going to the university. He still doesn't speak French because, um, because as a very good English speaker, he, he, he speaks English with French people. Um, he still has no job. And um, so he's, he's kind of depressed. It seems like you and uh, Ibrahim were, were, were close. You were buddies on, on that trek. What about now? Now we are still friends, but um, it's just that he's in a very um, difficult uh, situation. And um, plus he's very far away from his family. And that's something very important that we mustn't forget that these people flee. Uh, they are in exile. They have left uh, what they cherish the most. So they do not all react the same. And for Ibrahim, it's, it's quite difficult, but I'm quite confident that, that, he will, that he will prevail. What about Ahmad? You saw him just a little while ago, right? Well, I had not seen Ahmad for months, and uh, I went to Lyon to actually visit him. How are you? So when I met Ahmad in Lyon train station, uh, my wife had told me, whenever you see Ahmad, call me because I want to hear his voice. Stéphanie Oui. Je te passe quelqu'un. <rire> Stéphanie Ahmed, comment ça va Oui, ça va bien. Et toi ah, Ça me fait plaisir de t'entendre. Tu vas bien Oui, bien, très bien, très bien. Merci. Comment ça va la famille Ça va très bien. Ça va It was amazing to, th to see this guy who could barely communicate with me on the trek having a conversation in French with my wife. <laughs> As it turns out, Rafael learned that Ahmad has a wife back in Sudan, a wife he hasn't seen in years. He wants to bring her to France, but his life there so far has been unstable and tough. Ahmad had been living in that abandoned church building in Nantes too, but the refugees were evicted in November of 2016. The police stormed the place and gave everybody two minutes to get their stuff and get out. Ahmad ended up going to the city of Lyon. Now he's living in a former school that's been turned into a refugee center. Yeah, um, but the living conditions there is uh, very difficult. Uh, it's cold, dirty. Uh, there is one kitchen for 85 people. And he only has uh, four hours of French lessons a week. What were you expecting from this last journey and what did you find, finally find? 
كويس يعني هو واحد واحد اصلا هدفه انه يصل الى ماي جول واز تو ميك ات تو فرانس اي هاد نو ايديا اباوت اسايلم بت اي وانت تو ميك ات تو ا سيف بليس اند هاف ا بيتر لايف ذان ذا وان اي هاد باك هوم وذ اول ذا بروبلمز اوف ميردر ثيفت اند ثريتس قتلي ونحب وتهديد والكلام دي تكون ما في Do you feel you're strong enough to succeed? You still have strength to succeed? Yes, of course. I have been through the worst. What's coming cannot be worse. Because since I was a child, and as far as I can remember, my life has been full of difficulty. Are you optimistic? Do you want to go back to Sudan? How, what do you want? No, I do not regret leaving Sudan. I haven't reached that level yet. But I am searching for a better life. I have ambitions larger than this. How to get there, that's the problem. Ahmad is one of the 36,000 refugees who received either temporary or permanent asylum in France last year. 85,000 people applied. As for Rafael, the refugee crisis is now a major part of his work. In September of 2016, he went public with this whole story in a French radio documentary. Then he published a book called Smuggler. Both the book and, and the documentary have been welcomed positively by the public. Uh, right-wing newspaper Le Figaro wrote a story that was quite positive about this experience. And um, so I have, I have received no threats. Of course, uh, extreme right-wing trolls on the Internet are having great pleasure to insult me. But they're just trolls, you know, so it's okay. His career hasn't suffered. The police haven't charged him for smuggling Ibrahim and Ahmad, and his door is still open to refugees coming through Paris, even though France is still trying to keep them out of the country. French police arrested and expelled people at the border 30,000 times in 2016. As I am talking to you, people are waiting in Ventimiglia to actually go through the border. So what France is doing is um, just like all European countries. They are trying to build walls. And as of myself, I will keep hosting people, whether they are uh, legal uh, or illegal. Since we first aired this story last winter, there was a presidential election in France. For a while, it looked as though anti-immigrant candidate Marine Le Pen had a real chance. But in the end, centrist candidate Emmanuel Macron won. So far, Raphael says, very little has changed for refugees trying to get into the country. For Ibrahim and Ahmad, things are looking up. Ibrahim got a permit to stay in the country for 10 years. He's attending university and sharing an apartment with two other refugees. Ahmad finished his French classes and is looking for a job. Thanks to reporter Raphael Kraft for bringing his story to us. Raphael is also a photographer. You can see some of the incredible pictures of his trek with Ibrahim and Ahmad on our website, revealnews.org.
update show was edited by Taki Telemetis and David Richard. Laura Starcheski was our lead producer. Thanks to Reveal's Aaron Glantz, Hana Baba, Lo Benishu, and WHYY in Philadelphia for production help on today's episode. Our sound design team is the Wonder Twins. My man, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Claire C. Note Mullen. Original scoring this week by Jim Briggs. Our head of studio is Krista Scharfenberg. Amy Powell's our editor-in-chief. Suzanne Reber is our executive editor, and our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story.
X-Ray. Support for X-Ray FM comes from our listeners, as well as Brass Tack Sandwiches. Providing house-made ingredients and responsibly sourced sandwiches to meat lovers and vegans alike. Brass Tacks is located on North Vancouver and Fremont. More information online at BrassTackSandwiches.com. Support for X-Ray FM comes from Bridge City Cleaning Service, a local company providing custom cleaning to hundreds of homes in the greater Portland area. More information at BridgeCityCleaning.com or by phone at 503-238-1232. X-Ray. Go away from my window Leave at your own chosen speed I'm not the one you want, babe I'm not the one you need You say you're looking for someone Never weak, but always strong To protect you and defend you Whether you are right or wrong Someone to open each and every door It ain't me, babe No, 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 it ain't me, babe It ain't me you're looking for, babe Go lightly from the Babe, go lightly on the ground I'm not the one you want, babe I will only let you down You say you're looking for someone Who will promise never to part Someone to close her eyes for you Someone to close her heart Someone who will die for you and more It ain't me, babe No, 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 it ain't me, babe It ain't me you're looking for, babe I said no, 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 it ain't me, babe I said no, 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 it ain't me, babe Donald Trump Jr. to take a meeting with a Russian national who 